Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Good morning, Vietnam! I have you now. We came, we saw, we kicked its ass. Hello! My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're gonna see some serious... You're listening to the 30-something movie podcast. One movie each week, 30 years in the making. And yes, you are listening to the 30-something movie podcast. Um, This is episode number 105, and it's just little old me here tonight. Um, I am recording this by myself because we, I, I, and a couple of the other guys have just watched Rogue One, and they were not able to get together to be able to talk about it this time around uh, just yet, but I wanted to get this out as soon as possible just because I had some stuff that you know I wanted to be able to say about the movie, and uh, there's a limited number of people right now that I can talk to about it because there's only a few that have seen it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and record uh, my thoughts on Rogue One, and then sometime within the next couple weeks or so, as you know, you those of us, those of you who listen to us, uh, know that we are teachers, and so we've got winter break coming up. So hopefully, sometime during that winter break time, we'll have a time to kind of sit around uh, and talk about what we liked about the movie. Maybe if there are some things that we didn't like about the movie, whatever. But I am going to go ahead and do my stuff right now. And then you, if you're listening and would like to give other feedback to us, like to throw some, uh, throw your hat in the ring in terms of your thoughts and your opinions on the movie, feel free to go ahead and do that too. You can do that several different ways. You could email us at 30podcast at gmail.com. You could tweet us at 30podcast. You could uh, send us a voicemail. Our voicemail line is 87235-MOVIE. That's 872-356-6843. This is a podcast, which is audio, so we would love audio recordings. That just it makes sense, so you could do it. Um, yeah, but yeah, if you have any feedback at all, please feel free to send that our way. Um, I think I'm just going to jump right into it here. So we're going to get going. Um, I'm going to talk really quickly about spoilers. It's a brand new movie, so... There's less of you than usual that would not have seen this movie. Um, So I will be spoiling this movie. I will be talking about all the different things that happen. And I've only seen this movie once. So there are things that I may miss, um, you know, in the amount of time. And I'm not going to take a whole huge heaping amount of time to talk about it. So um, this will not be like a three-hour show in which I go horribly in-depth on everything. Um, But definitely, definitely, definitely spoilers for this movie. Spoilers for... Let's just say spoilers for anything Star Wars. If you haven't seen anything Star Wars, if you haven't read anything Star Wars, you're probably going to get spoiled with this episode. Uh, so if you don't want to know, then maybe come back and listen to it later. But there are definite, definite spoilers uh, in this episode of our podcast because I'm going to be going into all kinds of different things that either I saw or found or liked uh, when I was watching Rogue One. Also, very quickly, before I get too much further into it, we would love it if you would review us on iTunes um, or whichever podcatcher you're using to listen to your podcast and to listen to our show. Uh, go in and give us a review. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear what we're doing well, what you'd like to see more of. Um, if you want to just talk about how uh, funny 
Pat is or Jeff or Dennis when he shows up or Bo or any of the other guys. Um, you know, you, you could totally talk about that too, but we would love to hear from you and hear uh, what it is that you're enjoying about the show or what it is that maybe you'd like to see a little different with the show. So please feel free to go over on iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcasts and let us know how we're doing. Okay, that being said, let's just dive right into this. Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, was released on December 16th, 2016, rated PG-13. Uh, there's not a whole lot of language in the movie, but it's definitely sci-fi warlike violence. So, um, uh, And there's a couple of other, there's like a creepy alien thing with tentacles. and So some stuff that might not be okay for kids. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that later, but it is definitely a PG-13 movie. So if you're thinking about taking kids to it, um, hold off a little bit and I'll, I'll tell you maybe why or why not. That'd be a good idea. Uh, directed by Gareth Edwards, who also did Monsters and Godzilla. You can see there's kind of a theme going there. Producers for this one, Simon Emanuel, who was the production manager for several Harry Potter movies, Dark Knight Rises, Fast and the Furious 6, and Star Wars The Force Awakens. Kathleen Kennedy was also a producer. She did E.T., Poltergeist, Gremlins, Back to the Future, The Money Pit, Inner Space, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, basically everything we've ever seen. Uh, Allison Shermer. I think it's Shermer or Shermer, um, did the Hunger Games movies, Cinderella, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, and the upcoming Power Rangers movie. Writers for this one, there were a plethora. Uh, Chris Weitz was the, uh, did the screenplay. He also did Ants, About a Boy, The Golden Compass, and Cinderella. Tony Gilroy did the screenplay as well. Uh, also wrote The Devil's Advocate, Armageddon, and the Jason Bourne movies. John Knoll did part of the story for this one. John Knoll and Gary Whitta uh, were some of the first writers on this. And uh, for John Knoll, this is his only writing credit so far, but he did visual effects for Star Wars episodes 4, 6, 1, 2, 3, Inner Space, Willow, Hunt for Red October, the Star Trek movies, Pirates of the Caribbean movies, and Avatar, as well as others. Uh, Gary Whitta did, uh, was a Walking Dead video game, After Earth, and two episodes of Star Wars Rebels. I thought I remember hearing originally that he also was one of the writers on Toy Story 3, but for some reason I, I didn't see that when I looked at IMDb, so maybe I'm misremembering that. And then obviously based on characters created by the great, the notorious GL, uh, George Lucas, uh, who did Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Willow, and all that other fun stuff. Uh, and Howard the Duck, if you want to throw that one in there too. But I, I would imagine if the other guys were here, they would not want to throw that in, but I'm going to do it anyway, because you know what? That's the kind of love I have for... Everything. Um, music for this one was Michael Giacchino, who also did the Medal of Honor video games, The Incredibles, uh, the TV show Alias, the TV show Lost, the first of uh, three new Star Trek movies, Up, Jurassic World, Doctor Strange, Spider-Man Homecoming, War for the Planet of the Apes, and The Incredibles 2 that was just announced. Budget for this one was $200 million. So far, in the week that it's been out, um, not even a week that it's been out, it has made $323.5 million. That is as of the recording that I'm doing right now, uh, December 20th, 2016. Star Wars Rogue One was starring Felicity Jones as Jin Erso. She was in Amazing Spider-Man 2, The Theory of Everything, and Inferno. Diego Luna played Cassian Andor. He was in Itumama Tambien, The Terminal, Milk, and Elysium. 
Alan Tudyk was K2SO. He was in A Knight's Tale, iRobot, Ice the Ice Age movies. He was in the TV show Firefly. Um, he was in Wreck-It Ralph, and he was also in Frozen. Donnie Yen played Chirrut Imwe. He was in the Ip Man movies, Highlander Endgame, and Blade Two. Uh, Wen Zhang, I think I'm saying that right. Hope I'm saying it right. Uh, Baze Malthus, Malthus, Baze Malbus was his character's name. He was in Devils on the Doorstep, The Sun Also Rises, and Let the Bullets Fly. Uh, ben Mendelsohn played director Orson Krennic. He was in Australia, The Dark Knight Rises, Exodus, Gods and Kings, and he will be in the movie Ready Player One that's coming out in 2018. Forrest Whitaker played Saw Guerrera. He was in Platoon, Good Morning Vietnam, The Last King of Scotland, Lee Daniels the Butler, and will be in the upcoming Marvel Black Panther movie coming out in 2018. Riz Ahmed played Bodhi Rook, the uh, Imperial pilot the, uh, turned defector. He was in Four Lions, Nightcrawler, and the, Jason, and the movie Jason Bourne that just came out. Mads Mikkelsen played Galen Erso. He was in Casino Royale as Le Chiffre. Um, that was just my chance to practice French, which I haven't practiced in a really long time. Uh, he was also in The Hunt, the TV show Hannibal, and Doctor Strange. Jimmy Smits played Bale Organa. He was in L.A. Law, NYPD Blue, Star Wars 2 II and 3, uh, The West Wing, and Sons of Anarchy. Alistair Petrie played General Draven. He was in The Foresight Saga, Rush, and The Night Manager. Genevieve O'Reilly played Mon Mothma. She was in Star Wars Episode II, Attack of the Clones, The Matrix Reloaded, and The Matrix Revolutions. Uh, Paul Casey played Admiral Raddus, uh, the Mon Calamari Admiral at the end of the movie. He was in 28 Days Later, Blade II, uh, Doctor Who, and Star Wars The Force Awakens. Stephen Stanton did the voice of Admiral Raddus. He's done voice work for Star Wars The Clone Wars, Star Wars Rebels, uh, Life Itself, the movie about Roger Ebert and Godzilla. James Earl Jones did the voice of, did the voice, the voice of Darth Vader. He did the voice of, and now I'm turning into Daffy Duck. Um, James Earl Jones did the voice of Darth Vader. Uh, he was in, obviously, the Star Wars movies, Doctor Strange Love, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Uh, Conan the Barbarian, The Lion King, The Sandlot, Field of Dreams, and Coming to America. Spencer Wilding played the physical Darth Vader. He was also in Batman Begins, Wrath of the Titans, Guardians of the Galaxy. Guy Henry uh, did the motion capture work for Grand Moff Tarkin. He was in Rome, John Adams, the TV show, V for Vendetta, and the Harry Potter movies. Uh, Ingvild Dela, did I say that right? Dela? Delia? Dela? Something like that. Uh, I believe she's Norwegian. She did the motion capture for Princess Leia. Uh, she was in Avengers, Age of Ultron, and This Is Not Happening. Valene Kane played Lyra Urso. She was in a movie called 71 and a TV series called The Fall. Uh, Drew Henley, who died uh, earlier this year, uh, I think in February, maybe, um, of 2016, reprised his role as Red Leader. He was not actually in the movie, but they did take old footage from, that was unused uh, from the original Star Wars and put him in there, as well as uh, Gold Leader, who I'll get to in a second. Uh, but he was in Star Wars Episode Four and When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth, um, among many other movies and TV shows. And then Angus McInnes played Gold Leader, again, unused footage from the original Star Wars movie. So he was in Star Wars Episode Four, Witness, Hellboy, and Captain Phillips. Critics gave this one an 84% on Rotten Tomatoes. Audience gave it a 90%. Uh, obviously, I cannot give you the Siskel and Ebert scores because, well, they're dead. Um, much like... Okay, did I already give spoilers? I already said spoilers. Much like everybody else in this movie. Okay. Uh, Cinema score gave it an A. There are no awards for this movie yet, but I'm sure there probably will be at some point. 
And let's see if you recognize the little summary that uh, I was able to come up here, uh, come up with here for this movie. It is a period of civil war. Rebel spaceships striking from a hidden base have won their first victory against the evil galactic empire. During the battle, rebel spies managed to steal secret plans to the empire's ultimate weapon, the Death Star, an armored space station with enough power to destroy an entire planet. I wrote that myself, by the way, just so we're all clear. Um, that was just totally inspired, came absolutely out of my brain, is not part of the opening crawl of Star Wars Episode Four. Just, just so we're clear. Okay. Uh, trailer time. The world is coming undone. Imperial flags reign across the galaxy. Can you be trusted without your shackles? Let's just get this over with, shall we? We have a mission for you. A major weapons test is imminent. We need to know how to destroy it. If you're really doing this, I want to help. Good. Good. I've been recruiting for the Rebellion for a long time. We destroyed our home. I fight the Empire now. I fear nothing. All is as the Force wills it. The Captain says you are a friend. I will not kill you. Thanks. There isn't much time. Every day they grow stronger. There's a 97.6% chance of failure. He means well. This is our chance to make a real difference. Are you with me? All the way. So in terms of background stuff for this movie, um, you know, I, I will, let's just, we'll start off with a couple of different things that, um, you know, I think some people may be aware of when it comes to this movie. There were some issues with this one kind of right off the bat. Um, originally Gary Whitta was brought in as the writer for this and there were some concerns over the story. So he was replaced fairly early on. Um, I think John Knoll came in and, and did a little bit of work to help rewrite some of the story that he had put together in there as well. Um, you know, I almost want to say that you know, when I was thinking of maybe the writer I was thinking of for Toy Story 3, maybe that was Force Awakens. Oh, well, no, whatever. Um, so it's not important. It's just people's jobs and, and what they do as professionals. Um, totally kidding, by the way. If, if you're listening to this from another country and my sarcasm is not coming through clear enough and there's plenty of it, um, I'm, I'm totally kidding. I, I just don't know if he's the writer or not that I was thinking of earlier, and I'm not going to take the time to go look it up because we're in the middle of recording, so that's how it works. Um, but yeah, so he, I know he was replaced early on, and that was a bit of a a little a little bit of a red flag uh, for some of the fans. Um, and 
So there were some issues kind of surrounding story stuff. And then there were a lot of, there was a lot of talk of how this was going to be a different type of Star Wars movie, a very different look and feel to it, um, that it was going to be a gritty, darker Star Wars movie. And I think to a certain degree it is. Um, it still has a lot of that Star Wars feel to it. So I, I don't want to say that it's gone completely in a different direction. Um, but I think maybe even the movie that we saw that came out last week is a di very different movie than what it was originally intended to be. Um, it sounded like there were a lot of different rewrites that it went through. Um, a lot of different, I know that there were a lot of reshoots, uh, that happened. Um, I want to say that was back in either August. I think it was August. They went back and did a lot of different reshoots because I think in a way, the movie, I think the finished cut of the movie that they had at that point was not exactly what Disney had in mind. Um, and I do know that, I believe that it was uh, Tony Gilroy, uh, one of the other writers, that was kind of brought in to do um, a little bit of the rewriting of the final script and that he himself actually was going to do some of those reshoots. So I don't know. I, I would be really curious to see um, the movie that Gareth Edwards put together at that point. Um, I was also interested to hear the soundtrack because I know Alexandre Desplat, um was going to be doing the soundtrack for it. And I guess I think he had written actually a, a bit of the soundtrack and I think it would have been interesting because it's a very different style um, than the other Star Wars movies. But then they did, uh, because of the reshoots, or that's the official story that they gave, he was not able to continue. And so when he did drop out, they did bring in Michael Giacchino, who then had a, a ridiculous four weeks, I think it was, four and a half weeks, to complete the score to this movie. Now, I think most composers, and again, I'm not a composer, so uh, if anybody wants to correct me on this, go right ahead. I think most times they tend to have somewhere between... Um, six months to a year normally, and six months is probably very short, um, but something like six months to a year to be able to write a film score, compose, to, do, to do all that, to do the composing, to do the actual performing, um, and Michael Giacchino, I think, had four and a half weeks. So, And in listening to the, the soundtrack, I've listened to it over and over again uh, since I bought it the day it came out, and um, I, I think... Gosh, if that's what he can do in four and a half weeks, then I, I mean, I, and I've liked some of his other music too from his other movies, but uh, I thought he did a great job with the soundtrack and, and I'll get into that later a little bit more in depth, but um, you know, if, if that's what he can do in four and a half weeks, then that's pretty awesome. And, and I think, you know, keep, keep him on retainer for any of the other future Star Wars movies because he was, you know, I, I found that he paid enough homage to John Williams stuff that I didn't miss John Williams in this movie. I was wondering how I'd feel about that. The first non-John Williams Star Wars movie didn't miss him because I thought the music was great. Um, yeah, I don't really know that there's a whole lot of other background. I mean, at this point, we also don't know some of the other stories uh, that went on in terms of the making of this movie. Um, you know, it went back and forth between call, being called a Star Wars anthology movie and, and the Star Wars story. Um, I don't know. I thought I heard something the other day that the rest of the movies will probably not be using the tagline or the subtitle, A Star Wars Story. Uh, this may be the only one. So the Han Solo one that's coming up is probably not going to be called Han Solo, A Star Wars Story. Uh, but it might. I don't know. Um, so, yeah. So uh, let's see. Any other background? 
Uh, I thought the location for Scarif, the plan, that planet in particular, was beautiful. It's the Lamu Atoll in the Maldives uh, that was used to film for that island, uh, for that planet. Um, Jeddah, of course, the, the moon of Jeddah, where the Jedi Holy City and the, the temple were. Um, I think that was filmed in Jordan, I believe. Um, so, you know, a lot of different locations that they used. Um, I heard that they used a British uh, tube uh, station. I think it was the Canary Wharf station for part of the one of the scenes um, where they're inside the base. They're trying to sneak into the base to get the Death Star plans. Um, but yeah, so why don't I just jump right in to my thoughts here on the movie? And because I know there's a, a couple of other, I know some of the other guys, and I'll let them speak for themselves, obviously, but they, um, some of us had a very similar reaction to this movie where we really enjoyed it and we loved it. And some others, I think were a little more subdued or maybe a little more, you know, not as it, it didn't, it didn't affect them the same way that it affected me. So they may be not as big fans, but uh, I will let them do their thing when, when we come on and talk together. And I think there's one or two that even haven't seen it yet. So just with schedules and everything else, just haven't got around to seeing it. So I will let them do their thing. This is all totally my opinions, my stuff, for the movie, so I'm just going to jump right in. So what did I like about Rogue One? I liked, I loved the look and feel. It was Star Wars. It was lived in. They always talk about in, in those documentaries, it's got that lived in sci-fi feel where things are just a little used and a little dirty. Um, it's not clean like Star Trek or it's not, um, you know, some of the others, you know, 2001, it's not, everything's not sterile and clean. It's the stormtroopers have dirt on their uniforms. Um, you know, everything is, is just a little rusted or a little used. And you can tell it's been there for a while. It's not just something that was plopped down and built as part of a movie set three weeks ago. Um, so really like that. Had the look and feel of Star Wars. The planets, the aliens, the the music, the, the everything about it. Just it, the ships, all that stuff. The bad guys and the way the bad guys, the way the villains presented themselves and the way they acted and... Um, just their, then their behavior, all that stuff. It was very, very Star Wars and I really liked it. Um, one thing that I felt had been missing in the Star Wars movies from the prequels and one thing that, that really kind of disappointed me about the prequels and, and I will, and I know I've said this before, if you've listened to any of our Force Awakens, um, shows that we did back when that came out last year, I like all the Star Wars movies. I won't say that I love all the Star Wars movies. Um, I do like the prequels. I like Episode one, I like episode two. Um, you know, there are certain things about episode two that I definitely enjoy more. And I will say that episode two in particular, there are times where I will fast forward through parts of that movie or I will skip to a different chapter on the Blu-ray. Um, but uh, yeah, and then in episode three, I really enjoyed uh, Revenge of the Sith. That's probably my favorite of the prequel movies. But I do like the prequels. So I will start off by saying I am one of those Star Wars fans that likes pretty much everything Star Wars. So if this is going to sound overly positive to you, then that's why. Because if it's Star Wars, I like it. This movie um, did something that The Force Awakens, I think, started to reintroduce. And something that I thought was, sadly, was missing from the prequels. And that was the sense of the mystical religious aspect of the Force and of the Jedi. I remember, you know, as a kid and growing up, seeing the Jedi and how they 
kind of portrayed themselves with Obi. I mean, the only examples you had were Obi Wan and Yoda, um, and then you had Luke you know, towards the end of uh, in Return of the Jedi, and just kind of how they presented themselves. Then I kind of built up this idea in my head, and and my dad really liked to watch um, old Japanese movies too. Yeah, Akira Kurosawa and, and some of the other stuff. Uh, Zatoichi, which, you know, the blind swordsman, which really comes in when you talk about uh, Chirrut Imwe in this movie. But um, he liked to watch some of those old movies. So I, I got a sense, or at least I built up in my head this story from about middle school on. I had this whole idea in my head that the Jedi were these like warrior monks, that it was going to be something like samurai. It was going to be like the seven samurai or, or something like that where you have these warrior monks that are, are, they have this very religious aspect to them, but they're not afraid to, I mean, that's part of it. They're, they'll whip out their sword and, and, and beat you if need be. Um, so when the prequels came along, I mean, that was something, I remember writing stories about what I thought the prequels were going to be when they were getting made. So when I think when I was in high school, I was writing stories about, well, this is, this is going to be what it's like. And this is what the Jedi are like. And here's what we're going to see. And, and it didn't happen. And it was just very, everything was very political and everything was all about corruption and political corruption. And, and it just didn't have, and then of course they brought in the, <clears throat> sorry, I can't say it, midichlorians. Um, sorry. Okay. Feeling better. Um, they brought in the midichlorians, which I felt fine. If you need a way to define and show people how Anakin is, so much more amazing than everyone else, then that's fine. But I, there's maybe a better way to do it. Um, but I felt like that that really kind of killed that whole sense of these being like the warrior monks. When when Alec Guinness as Obi Wan is is there at at the beginning of Star Wars and he's dressed in that robe and you know it, to me it just kind of it, something there was lost that I think could have been. And since then I've seen some different Star Wars. Um, Fan films and, you know, I mean, ever since fan films started on the internet, um, you know, back at least 10 years ago, if not more, um, you had a lot of fan films that then took that idea of the master and the apprentice and, and a little bit more of like the Eastern mysticism sense of it and, and the more religious spiritual aspect of it. And when I see those, I think, wow, that that actually would have been a much better prequel story than, than what, what I feel like we ended up getting where there was the political intrigue and that to me was less in, less interesting. Um, that could have been fine if that was a backstory or if that was a, a backdrop to the actual story, but for that to be the story itself, um, you know, it, it fell a little flat for me. And and again, I like the prequels. I, I, I do enjoy them. I will watch them over and over and over again. Uh, despite faults and everything, you know, warts and all, I will watch the prequels and I will enjoy them. But they were not what I was hoping for as a fan. Fast forward to The Force Awakens. You start getting these little hints at the very beginning of the movie. You get these hints that there's there's something called the Church of the Force. And there are these people that are protecting the legacy of the Force and the Jedi. and the, So there's a religious aspect there to it. And then you have Luke, you know, creating the new... Um, Jedi Academy and teaching these kids and you've got Kylo Ren with his Knights of Ren and you've got all this other stuff going on but you do bring back a little bit of the religious mystical aspect to it all um, 
and I, I liked that. I liked getting that from The Force Awakens. And then having it be at the, at the end of the movie, having them go to, um, I always mess up the name of the planet. Was it Octo or Octo, Octu, something like that. Um, I always butcher the pronunciation of that one. Uh, where the, the first Jedi temple was, or one of the first Jedi temples were. And it's very much like the monasteries that you would have. Uh, I used to live over in England for a while, and we would talk about sometimes that the monks would go to these little islands that were just off the coast of England or Scotland or Ireland, um, and they would build their monastery there so that they were separate from everyone else. And so it really reminded me of that and, and brought back to that idea of these are like monks that are spending their lives in, you know, separate from everybody else. Then, yes, of course, they will serve others and they will be the guardians of peace and justice and all that. But at the same time, they are separate from everyone else and there is a spiritual aspect to it. Fast forward now to this movie, to Rogue One. And that was something that I really, really liked about this movie was having the guardians of the wills to talk about the Jedi holy city and all this other stuff that really, I think, I mean, just the just the characters of Chirrut and Maze. Um, and just the idea that, well, at the beginning of the movie when they, when um, Lyra, when Jin's mother hands her the little uh, kyber crystal and says, you know, trust in the Force, that when Chirrut is praying to the Force later, and especially that one of those, the final scene he has where he's trying to get to, um, trying to get to that master switch um, to make sure that they can switch on the, the receiver and send the signal. And he's just, as he's walking through the, the battlefield on the beach, he's repeating that mantra over and over and over again. Um, you know, I am, I said, I'm one with the force. I am, the force is with me and I am one with the force. The force is with me. I am one with the force. Uh, and then for Maze to come up and, and do that too with him. But that kind of spiritual aspect to it, I'm, I'm interested to see where they go from here with that because that's something that I was always interested in seeing before. What I would love to see is, and I don't know, that they have any of these characters signed for other movies, any of these actors signed. I would love to see for them to go back in time, maybe even a few years uh, before Rogue One, and do a story that revolves around Chirrut Imwe and the guardian of the the guardians of the wills and this Jedi holy city and this temple and, and all this other stuff. I would be curious to see that. I don't know that they're going to do it, but um, I would definitely be curious to see something like that. The effects in this movie were done really, really well. Uh, I thought with the I, there were plenty of practical effects, but you know, just the scenery, the CG that was used, um, that this was a very personal story. You know, sometimes they talk about the original three movies as being in a small corner of the galaxy. That it was more personal than the prequels were. The prequels were these, you know, galaxy-spanning movies where you're hopping from planet to planet and. And, um, you know, it's all about the galaxy and it's all about the government and it's all about things changing on a huge broad scale. And people talk about the original movies as being much more intimate, um, on a smaller scale, a more personal story. And I really got that sense from this one too, that it does, it, it is a little bit more of a personal story and a lot of the action is more up close and personal. It, it does feel like a lot of people that I've heard from or, or listened to, um, 
or talked to have said this feels like a first-person shooter game. So you feel like you're actually in the action. Now, sometimes they did use a steady cam for some of their shots, which obviously is meant to bring you into the action. And I think I did feel that way more so than any other Star Wars movie. You felt like you were in the battle right alongside them. Um, I, I cannot say that I felt that way with um, you know the Battle of Endor, the Battle of Hoth, um, George Lucas, others have put it this way, the George Lucas films in, in very much a documentary style, whereas Gareth Edwards, uh, I think, films in a little bit more of a, um, you know, drop you right in the middle of the action kind of style and you feel like you're there. This would be, and I've never, I have not done one of these, uh, I have not done a virtual reality thing since I first saw virtual reality in the Trocadero Mall in London uh, back in the mid-90s. Um, there was a tank video game and they had these giant helmets that you put on that were the VR machines. I think this would be a, a very cool movie to watch in VR. If there was a way to watch it, I don't know. I don't know what goes into setting that up and making it possible, but you know, this, I, in some ways you kind of felt like you already were because in those fight scenes and the battle scenes, you were right there alongside with them and the, the way the shots were done, it felt that way. But I think this would be an interesting movie to to watch in VR. Um, I thought the acting was good. That's one of the first times I think I could say in a Star Wars movie that the acting was good. Uh, you know, there were Force Awakens. I thought the acting was pretty good. But again, it, it had very much that Star Wars feel to it that there's a little bit of a little bit of a cheesy campiness to some of the acting. Um, you know, people are, are playing over the top characters uh, as a homage to the old over-the-top characters of the you know, Flash Gordon TV shows and other stuff that George Lucas was basing his universe off of. This one, I, I felt like it was, um, you know, this is one of the first times that I could say I really felt like a Star Wars movie was well-acted. And that there, I mean, there were a few moments that, yes, were a little over-the-top with some of it, but, um, you know, particularly with uh, director Krennic, you know, he was that almost like a mustache-twirling bad guy. Um but uh, and we did get a a, a very Arnold Schwarzenegger esque um, pun from Darth Vader at one point. Um, Hope you do not choke on your aspiration as he's choking Director Krennic. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I, I mean that I, I did feel like the acting was pretty good in this movie, um, and and more so than I could probably say for any of the other films. Um, probably my two favorite characters in this were K two S O, obviously bringing the sarcastic. Um, comic relief to the movie and chariot in way. I just really liked his character, liked the whole backstory. Not that we got a lot, a lot of it, but we did get, you know, I think enough of a backstory to make his character interesting and want to find out more. So I'm sure they will do, I'm sure they will do other comic books and books. And, and I would be curious to see a, a movie um, featuring him as one of the main characters that goes back a few more years um, but I don't know. I don't know if they'll do that or not. I know that they are talking about doing a live action Star Wars TV show at some point too. They've been talking about that for nearly 20 years now. Um, but, uh, would be curious to, you know, to see if, depending on what the timeline for that, uh, if he were to show up in that as well. So I did like the callbacks to other films. I've heard some people say they thought that it was overdone to have all the different little Easter eggs. And I'm going to go through a list of, of all the different Easter eggs, the ones I found, the ones I didn't find. Um, and I will do that here in just a minute, but I did like all those little callbacks for me as a star Wars fan. Um, you know, I know some people said, oh, I just cringed every time they did that. And, but for me as a, a huge fan of these movies, I've grown up watching these movies 
every callback they had. There was only one, I think. I have to think about it, but I think there was really only one that I was like, oh, okay, that's cool, uh, maybe. Um, but other than that, I, everything else was kind of fun. Actually, there were two, and I'll mention those in a little bit. But um, yeah, I mean, other than that, it was fun. It was fun to see all these little references or to see a droid walking around or hear a sound effect that you know came from the original movie. Um, just really a lot of fun to, to see all that stuff. So some of the things that I've heard um, where people have been underwhelmed by the movie, some criticisms of it. Um, and these are not my criticisms. I have very few criticisms of this movie. I really enjoyed it. The criticisms, the criticisms I've heard from a lot of people, um, I don't necessarily agree with. Now I will be curious to have the other guys come on and we'll all talk together. Um, because I know on some of these points, some of them do disagree with me. Uh, I've talked to Jeff a little bit. I heard, um, through the grapevine, some of the other guys' comments about the movie for those that have seen it. Um, and so we'll just, I'll be interested to sit down with, with them and kind of see, you know, what it was that they, what problems they had with the movie or, or if they didn't have any problems. But some of the things that I've heard is that, uh, one of the things that I've heard from several people is there is little characterization in this movie that they were underwhelmed by the characters. And in particular, they talk about Chirrut Imway and Baze Malbus. They, I've heard a couple of people say, like, who are these guys? Like, why are they friends? Who are these guys? We don't know anything about them. Um, I'll just go by one by one here. I think we do. I think that the different comments, I mean, when we talk about characterization, there's, and, and I'm sure I, I don't want to belittle these people's opinions when they say that they felt like there was very little characterization. There's direct characterization. Oh, here, here comes the language arts teacher, the English teacher in me. There's direct characterization where somebody says, and you see exactly what this person is, is talking about. You see why this person is this way. Or someone says, this person is evil. Or this person is struggling. Or, the, you know, that's the direct characterization. The indirect is where you see them react to situations. And you can base what you know about their character from situations that they find themselves in and how they react to that. How do they speak to others? What's their behavior? What's their mood? What's their tone? All of that stuff. So I don't find I don't find a problem with Chirrut and Baze's characters. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I guess I don't find a problem with them. Um, I know enough from those opening sequences that they are, or they one of the a Chirrut at least was a uh, guard for the temple on Jeddah. Uh, for the Holy City. And obviously he's not a guard anymore because the Empire has come in, taken over, and they're stealing all the kyber crystals. They're mining all that and taking it out. Um, so clearly he's he's obviously dealing with that the best way that he can, knowing that he's in an occupied uh, city with another force that's in there. Um, no pun intended. Uh, Bayes is kind of a mercenary, but it sounds like he may have also been a guardian of the wills at one point in time. Um, so I don't know, and, and they do talk a little bit about, you can tell Chirrut is probably at least Force-sensitive. He senses the Force. He's not necessarily a Jedi. He doesn't know how to use the Force, but at least he listens to it. He's attuned enough to it that that he can do what he does and and um, do the whole blind swordsman routine or the blind... Uh, 
samurai blind fighter routine, uh, very much like the Zatoichi movies. I mentioned those earlier. My dad really liked to watch those. Um, and I have a whole bunch of them sitting on the shelf over here that I have not watched in a while. So I'm sure I'm going to be breaking those out sometime soon. But, you know, some of the comments that he makes and, and when he's praying to the force and I felt like I had enough characterization for him there. I don't know that I needed more. Um, and, and I don't feel like, I don't know that I feel like there was any less characterization there than some of the characters we got in the original Star Wars movies. Um, the only characterization I knew for Chewbacca was that he was hanging around with Han Solo. And based on the movie, that's all I knew is that he was his co-pilot. There's nothing in the movie that says why they're together. There's nothing in the movie that says why they hang out with each other, how they met. So I, I kind of find that criticism where somebody says there's not enough characterization there. You wouldn't say that about Chewbacca. And again, you you had multiple movies to, I guess, learn a little bit more about Chewbacca and, and about his personality and all that. With these characters, and again, spoilers, um, they all die. So you don't have any other characterization beyond this movie to be able to learn more about them. But the, I, mean, I feel like that maybe is an unfounded um, criticism of this, is that I, I felt like I knew these characters well enough that their deaths impacted me when it got to that point at the end of the movie. Some people said it didn't. And again, I'm, I'm not belittling their opinion. That's obviously their opinion. That's how they saw the movie. That's not how I saw it. I felt like I connected enough with these characters that their deaths meant something to me when it got to the end of the movie. Uh, Cassie and Andor said we know nothing about him at all. Like there's no characterization there. We know nothing at all. Dude killed a guy. D guy's supposed to be a rebel, and he killed a guy right at the, the, the first time we meet him. He m straight up murders a guy in an alleyway, and that's not rebel stuff. I mean, that's if you – my kids watch the Rebels TV show, and I grew up watching the other Star Wars movies. Rebels don't kill rebels. That's not how that works. This was a very maybe more realistic take. Um, you know, my wife and I have started to watch The Man in the High Castle on Amazon, and it kind of felt a little bit more like that, where, yeah, you're in the resistance, but if somebody's about to blow your cover, you stick a knife in them or, or do whatever you need to do to make sure that your cover stays intact. So it had a little bit more of that, that spy, espionage, intrigue uh, piece of it, and that, to me, kind of established right away that, whoa, we are dealing with a different side of the Rebel Alliance than we ever dealt with in any of the other Star Wars movies. Because I guarantee you, if Princess Leia had knifed somebody in one of the earlier movies, there would have been a lot of crying kids in the theater. Because um, it's just, it's very different. So, him and his struggle with the orders that he was given to, when they, the orders he was given that when they do find Galen Erso um, to kill him, to assassinate him and the struggle that he goes through with that. I, I found that that was decent enough characterization for me to care about him and, and to watch him as he changed and, and changed his mind. Um, so I, I don't, I don't get the criticism there that, that we don't know anything about him. Do I need to know what planet he came from? No. Do I need to know who his mom and dad are? No. Uh, is he Ray's dad? I don't know. Probably not, because that timeline. Yeah, because he no, he he's dead. So um, unless something weird happened, and no, he's not raised dead. Um, what I mean, what else do I need to know about the guy? What other in and look in looking into a movie like I don't know, take some other spy movie. 
guy's a spy. He's on a team of rebel spies. I don't know that I need to know that much more about him. So I, I just don't, I don't know that I get that criticism that, you know, we don't know enough about these characters. Um, people said saw Guerrera, that his voice was obnoxious. Dude's on a breathing machine. Okay. He had a, he basically was wearing a CPAP mask, um, so that he could, could do his thing. And then when he was talking like this and then, and then he's got his air and he's fine. So what I thought was interesting about that. And the first thing I thought when seeing that was you've got somebody who survived the clone wars. So this is a character back from the, the clone wars cartoon. Um, first time a character has, I think it's first time character has been used in the clone wars cartoon originally and has made it into one of the new movies. Um, but you have uh, you have this character, and what I thought was interesting is he has survived the Clone Wars. He's on the side of the rebels, although a very different kind of more extreme rebel than the other ones. Um, and he's a little bit like a Darth Vader. You can tell that parts of his body have been replaced with robotic parts, with metallic parts. And the guy's got a breathing problem, just like Darth Vader does. So you've got someone who like they have they have suffered greatly. Uh, because of the Clone Wars and because of the life that they've been leading. And I thought that was kind of interesting that, well, you've got this guy who obviously doesn't have the same resources as Darth Vader does, but he's got some of the same problems that Darth Vader does. So he's got this little mask, and he's got to breathe into it every once in a while. And I guarantee you, if you take Darth Vader's mask off, you're not going to have the intimidating you know, James Earl Jones voice. You're probably going to have Darth Vader sitting there going, where are the plans that you intercepted? So, I mean, it's, it, yeah. It didn't bother me. Was it a little weird to begin with? Sure, it was a little weird, but that's his character. Again, if you want to argue that there's no characterization in this movie and then criticize the characterization, go right ahead, but you're wrong. Um, There were some people that said this movie needed more Vader. I don't think that it did. Um, Vader gets plenty of time in the other movies. I think this was a good standalone movie that... um, I remember hearing with Rebels, the cartoon, that they said, look, we're not going to bring Darth Vader in because or we're not going to bring him in often. And we're, that's why we're going to bring in these other characters called the Inquisitors. And we're going to make sure that we're very careful with them because otherwise you end up with something like He-Man. I use that as an example because if you look back to the old He-Man cartoon, Skeletor is really not that much of a threat because is he going to lose every single week? Yes, he is. Um... It, when the bad guy loses that much now, of course, as kids, you watch that and you're like, wow, Skeletor, he's a bad dude. And he's good. You know, he might kill everybody this time. No, he's not gonna kill everybody this time. The only time anything like that ever happened was Optimus Prime dying in this Transformers movie in 86. But um, no, and I've heard that example used a few times before that you've got a character like Skeletor. And when you really, really, really think about it, he's not that threatening of a villain because he always loses. So the idea when the Rebels uh, creators, um, Dave Filoni and some of the others said, um, we're not going to use Vader all that much because if we bring Vader in, the idea is he is so much more powerful than everybody else that he should be able to wipe everyone out. Um, And if he doesn't, and if he loses, then he's not a threatening villain anymore. And so... I got enough Vader in this movie. I didn't need more. I thought the way he was used in this movie was pretty good. Um, getting to go. Oh, okay. We're let's just stop right now. Um, this was going to be one of my Easter egg things, but the fact that when we get to go see him and it's in his castle, 
in Bast Castle, and they didn't call it that in the movie, but there was, for the, let, let me sit down for a moment. Professor Reed is going to educate anyone who may not know about this. In the novelization, or early script or novelization of The Empire Strikes Back, it's probably early script. I don't remember reading it in the book. Early script of it, but I do remember hearing about it at, at some point, so maybe it was novelization. In the early script, Darth Vader had a castle, and it was called Bast Castle, B-A-S-T. And this was the castle where uh, he, I don't remember if that was the artwork, if it was the um, the Ralph McQuarrie artwork that showed uh, the Emperor crowning him Darth Vader um, in this kind of volcanic castle type thing that he had in this throne room that they had. I think maybe that was supposed to be the Emperor's throne room. Um, but Darth Vader was supposed to have this castle that he would go back to. And, and this was kind of his home base, his headquarters kind of thing. The fact that, I mean, from from childhood, that I remember seeing that artwork and hearing that Darth Vader had a castle. And it, it didn't show up in any of the movies, but just hearing that that existed, like, in my mind, I'm like, that would be really cool. Like, what kind of castle would Darth Vader have? Jump forward to this movie. Darth Vader's got a castle, you guys. He's got a castle. And not only has he got a castle, he built it on Mustafar. Now, they didn't say. I thought that was interesting. That's the only planet that didn't have a, a little title card pop up for it um, in the movie. But it, it's definitely Mustafar. It has been confirmed. I think the the head of the Star Wars story group uh, who makes sure that everything is kosher and copacetic, um, Pablo Hidalgo, uh, responded to somebody on Twitter a while back and said that's definitely Mustafar. Um, <clears throat> and he is an official voice from Lucasfilm, so it is Mustafar. So, I mean, that was just cool to see that, to see him in the back to tank, to see the, um, the servants that he had, the Imperial guards that he had there, the servant that he had. And I'm going to talk more about those later because there's all kinds of stuff going on, um, with the, uh, the acolytes of the beyond is what that one guy in the robe was called the hooded robe. I believe, um, they didn't, they didn't say that in the movie, but if I had to guess, that's exactly who that is. Um, but I'll mention a little bit more of that later. Now, there's also been the criticism of Tarkin and the CGI Tarkin and the CGI uh, Leia at the end of the movie, or the CGI Tarkin that takes up a good portion of the movie. And as I understand it, some of the reshoots that they did uh, were to put more Tarkin into the movie, which I thought was fine. I didn't have a problem. I don't need as much Vader in this movie, but I did like that there was more Tarkin in this movie. Did it take a little bit away from director Krennic? Yeah, but at the same time... I felt like you did need a little bit of Tarkin in this movie, so it lines up to, okay, Krennic was in charge of the Death Star, and now why is he not in charge of the Death Star? But Tarkin is. I like that part, other than just having Krennic die, which he does. Um, you know, how do you get how do you get to the point where Tarkin has taken this over? And opposed to just having Krennic die and then Tarkin takes it, I did like the part where Tarkin just walks in and he's like, okay, well, you've had your first successful test. This looks pretty good. I'm going to be in charge now. To me, that was a that was a purely imperial thing to do. Is like have someone else do all the work, and then you walk in as a higher ranking person. You walk in and just like, okay, well, this is my show now, um, and that's how it's going to work. Some people didn't like this because they didn't like the CGI. They thought that the CGI Tarkin was fake looking, and some people have taken it even further to say that this is now a horrifying look at the future of filmmaking, where you're going to have CGI actors. Uh, CGI versions of dead actors come back instead of having 
you know, new young actors come in and make movies and whatever. I, and again, I'm I'm not, even though I sound like I'm belittling, I, mean, I guess I am a little bit, I'm belittling people's opinions on this. I don't see this as a doom and gloom. This is the end of the film industry. You're, you know, you're not going to have, first of all, you're not going to have every movie from this point on. It just seems like people are thinking the sky is falling here. You're not going to have every movie from this point on bring in old dead actors and do a CGI thing as opposed to having new young actors come in and do these parts. With something like Star Wars, may you have that? Sure, you might have that. Um, at some point when they don't need to worry about making sure that people realize that this is tied in with those old movies, um, can they stop? And maybe if they want to do Tarkin, they bring in a different actor? Sure they can. Are you going to see this widespread through all these different movies? And No, I don't really think that you are. Partially because it's more expensive to do the CGI part of it. Um, I mean, I just, I don't think that it's, I think the technology is pretty, pretty close to being there. Um, I thought it looked pretty good. Could I tell that it was CGI? Yeah. Um, If I didn't know that Peter Cushing was dead, would I have known that it was CGI? Um, Probably. Probably. But I knew he was dead. And so that, you know, I was looking at that going, oh, Okay, that that looks a lot like him, and they've done a great job with this. I mean, that, look at the work that they and that was the way my son put it was, well, why are people so mad about this? Look how much work went into doing that. I'm like, there you go. There, that's the right attitude to have about this. Um, you know, and, and it's not like it's not like an actor lost their job because they did a CGI character. You still need someone to do motion capture, just because you have Smeagol as a CGI character in the Lord of the Rings, or just because the apes in Planet of the Apes are CGI characters, that doesn't mean that you don't have Andy Serkis doing the motion capture for them. So someone still had a job, and the world still spins, and it's still fine. And even with Leia, and even with Tarkin, and these other CGI actors that were in here, you still had someone that came in and did that job. Or you also had someone that came in and did the voice. Um, so I, I really don't think, and, and frankly, when it gets to that point, I don't think that younger audiences are going to be clamoring for movies with old actors in it. You know, if they want to do an oceans 19 movie in a few years, are they going to do a CGI George Clooney? Are they going to do a CGI Brad Pitt? I don't think so. You know, I mean, it's, it's not going to be the end of the world. They're not going to do, I heard one, I read one article where somebody said something like, well, you know, then they'll just bring back a CGI Sean Connery and he'll be James Bond for the, no. And that's part of the, that's part of the fun of James Bond is that you have different James Bonds. You have different actors. So for all these people that think that the CGI Tarkin is a doom and gloom end of Hollywood, end of movies as we know it, there's bigger things in the world to worry about. So I, I really don't see this as being a problem. I don't see this as being such a big catastrophic thing that a lot of people are talking about right now. But, you know, they're free to have their opinions, even if they're wrong. Um, one of the other criticisms in here was that nothing surprised me about Rogue One. There wasn't a sense of urgency or intensity. Um, did you watch the movie? Because... There was some stuff that surprised me. Again, going into spoilers here, we get down to the last five minutes of the movie and Darth Vader shows up in that hallway with the rebel soldiers and the, they're trying to get the little uh, 
little microchip thing or whatever the plans are on. They're trying to get down that hallway and get through that door that's kind of almost shut. And Darth Vader ignites his lightsaber. First time you see a lightsaber in the movie. Turns it on and starts marching toward these guys. There was a moment, and again, huge Star Wars fan. And again, I I can critically think through things, so it's not like I'm a dummy. There was a moment where that scene was so intense that I forgot that somebody would make it out of there okay with the plans because there has to be a Star Wars episode four. I forgot from it. I'm like, Darth Vader's going to kill every last one of these people. There is no way out. He is just going to massacre every single one. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, there's another movie. So that, so the, the, the thought that there was nothing there to surprise you or that there wasn't any urgency or intensity, I, I mean, I, I felt it. So I don't know. I, maybe, maybe they were looking for something that they just didn't find, and that's why they felt it was like that. But I felt that the entire last hour, I mean, some people have claimed that, that they felt the first hour or so, hour and a half, dragged a little bit, and then the last hour was pretty intense and, and good. Um, I, I mean, I felt that way for the whole movie. Is the beginning a little slower? Yes, because you're developing characters. Um, but, you know, that last hour I thought was pretty intense and pretty urgent. And, <clears throat> you know, you got to flip the switch. You got to run this cable. You got to, you know, get up to the tower and turn it on and, and rearrange it. And you got to get the shield down. And you, there was a lot of stuff going on. So I don't quite know. Um, I don't quite know why people felt there wasn't enough urgency there or that there wasn't anything to surprise them. Did we know what was ultimately going to happen with this? Sure. Yeah. Did I know that every single one of them was going to die? No. When they did talk about, you know, how they might not be able to get through the shield, but at least they could beam a signal, then I was like, oh, okay, well, most of them are probably going to die then because then there's no reason, there's no reason for it. Now, in the trailer, and that's where some of the unused, the the trailer footage that did not make it into the movie, I remember there being a shot of Jin running on the beach and she was holding like what looked like a, like a disc drive. Um, and so I, when seeing that in the trailer, I kept thinking, okay, well maybe they will survive because I remember seeing that in the trailer and, you know, maybe something happens that they can't get the signal through. So they do have to physically take these plans and, and get them away. Um, so I, I, I guess in a way that did kind of surprise me a little bit based on what I had seen from the trailers, the movie, the, the commercials and all that. Um, but you know, last criticism I'm going to mention here is Rogue One only works as a gap filler movie and it only works because of Star Wars 1977 exists. No, to me, if there was no other Star Wars, sure. Some different things in this movie might be a little confusing, but on its own as a heist movie, as a spy movie, um, I think it works just fine. You know, there is, there's a complete story here. You've got a, the daughter of the person who's going to help develop and, and build the Death Star and finish the Death Star. You've got Jyn Erso, who's searching for her father. Um, you've got Cassian, who has been given the task of assassinating Galen as soon as they find him. Um, you know, and you've got this this character of Galen Erso, who, you know, he, maybe he's not collaborating with the enemy, but uh, he's actually uh, hiding a flaw within the Death Star that they can exploit later. So, you know, I, I don't know that I... I don't know that I agree with some of those criticisms of the movie. I, they just don't hold true for me. I found the characters and the characterization and I found the the intensity of the movie to be emotionally 
harsh is not the right word, emotionally brutal, um, that these characters, maybe more so than other deaths in other Star Wars movies, it was it, it was emotional when these characters died. And if you if somebody watched this and they felt that it wasn't, then I, I guess that's I guess that's how you reacted to it. But in in a very different way, I reacted to it. And you know I, the droid when the droid is the one that buys it first. Um, you know, that I thought was probably one of the most emotional deaths in the movie. And maybe it was just because it took several shots to take him down. But, um, you know, I, I felt an intensity there. I felt, a um, you know, that there were surprises in this movie for me. So I just don't, I don't hold with the criticism that this movie is a gap filler. Uh, for me, this was a complete movie. Would I enjoy this movie if, as I said earlier, would I enjoy this movie if there were no other Star Wars movies, probably, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, the other callbacks and the other stuff; those those were awesome as a Star Wars fan to see. But could I enjoy this movie on its own as a standalone movie? Yes, I think it could. In fact, I had a few people ask me the other day. They're like, "Well, what with this new one coming out?" They were confused. They, they they're not big Star Wars fans. They're just the general movie going public, and they said, "Okay, well, so wait a minute. Where, where, where does this movie fall? Is this?" Isn't this number eight? Don't they have the the new characters? And I said, no, no, no. There's new characters, but this one is, think of this one as being like three and a half um, <clears throat> or three and three quarters, whatever you want to call it. But um, no, this one goes before the 1977 Star Wars. So then they said, okay, well, well, then how do you, how if I want to watch to get caught up on some of this, what short, what order should I watch them in? And that's always a very loaded question because do you go with the machete order the you know that people have developed to say that you treat the prequels as a flashback, you skip episode one, you treat two and three as a flashback, that you watch episode four, five, and two, then three, then six, then seven. Um, so they were asking me, well, okay, to, to get ready for this one, then what show order should I watch the movies in? And I was trying to think about that, and I, I almost thought, well, okay, Um you, in some ways, the Clone Wars story that runs through episodes two and three is a good one to know, but some of the things like, um, and again, we've said spoilers, and if you don't know this, then you, you haven't been around for a while or you, you just haven't paid attention to Star Wars movies or pop culture. Um, part of that machete order is to try to keep the surprise intact that Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father uh, and Princess Leia's father. So some people would say you, you know, to get some of the Clone Wars stuff, you need to be able to watch the prequels first. But I, the, the folks that asked me what order should we watch these in, I told them, you know what, go see Rogue One. If you haven't watched a Star Wars movie, go see Rogue One first. Then do four, then five, then if you want to do the whole machete order thing, jump back. And I don't like to throw out episode one. I actually really like episode one. So I would say do Rogue One, four, five. Then if you want to do the whole flashback thing, do one, two, three. Then come back to six. Then do seven. And then from here on out, you can go forward to, well, until the Han Solo movie comes out. Um, you can go forward to seven, eight, nine, and, you know, on and on forever. And I was reading something uh, the other day, or actually I think it was earlier today, that really what Rogue One does is it brings an intensity and it brings an urgency to 
um, the rest of the movies. I mean, it's almost like these, you've got these other, what do they used to call it? George Lucas used to call them like swashbuckling movies and adventure type movies, things like that. And But then this brings a real, wow, there is a galactic war going on and there's, people have had to do questionable things. And while you might not see that in the story of the Skywalkers, it's definitely going on uh, in the background, you know, things that you don't necessarily see, but, but it's there. And so I almost kind of feel like this does color the rest of the original trilogy movies in a way that, that they, they weren't perceived before. Um, now there are some interesting things that did pop up in this movie that I think we probably will see going forward in episode eight. We, I think we saw a little bit in episode seven, but going forward in eight, I think we're going to see a little bit more as well. Um, so at this point, I which I will talk about here in just a minute, but at this point, I do want to say a little bit about how maybe Rogue One is not the movie you want to take really young kids to. So I have a list of things here that I've kind of compiled for the, the parent that might be thinking or the really cool aunt or uncle that might be thinking of um, taking a young kid to go see Rogue One. Uh, I took my son to go see it. He is nine years old and... You know, he has seen he's seen other PG thirteen movies like Revenge of the Sith, and we've watched the Lord of the Rings movies. So he's not, you know, he he's not been shielded from watching movies with battle scenes and war in them. Um, and he really loved this movie, and and I thought that that was fine for him to go see that. Um, my daughter, who is six, I did not take her to go see it. I won't take her to go see it in the theater because. My wife and I have talked about this. We do feel like there is just, there's something a little bit different about seeing it in a theater when you are surrounded by the sound and the huge screen and the, just everything, the whole environment gets you so focused in on the movie. It's, it's a little different than watching it at home when your family's around. And you know, when your family, when you're sitting there watching it with your family, if there's questions, you can pause the movie at home. You can talk about those questions. Um, you know, a lot of times I, I like to be able to let them watch the movie first and then ask questions. But if, if that's an option that you want to have open to you. So I don't think, you know, if my son was any younger than nine, um, I don't, I think I would have watched it first and then gone to take him to it. I felt pretty safe knowing this is a Disney movie and knowing that it's star Wars and that we've seen star Wars. I didn't have a problem taking him on opening night when I hadn't seen it yet. Um, but you know, any younger than that, six, seven, I, obviously if you're a parent, it's up to you, uh, what you take your kids to. Cause I know there were some kids that were there that were much, much younger. Um, there were probably three and four year old kids that were at this movie. I wouldn't take my three or four year old to this movie, but you know, it, it is, it's up to the parents. So, so here's a quick list that I had of things that might make it kind of questionable for young kids to go to. Uh, Jen Erso watches her mom get gunned down at the beginning of the movie. Um, Cassie and Andor, one of the heroes of the movie, does some questionable stuff. He flat out murders an informant, uh, and he almost assassinates Galen Erso. So we've got heroes that are doing questionable things, and so that might be that might cause kids a little bit of trouble trying to understand. Well, why is that? If he's a good guy, why did he kill that person? Um, you know, some of the battle scenes are pretty intense. Um, K two SO is destroyed. He take it takes several shots to finally put him down. That I think being one of the Characters that kids, the droid, the the character that kids would kind of attach to and they would really like. Um, there's been toys of him put out. Uh, you know, um, he's funny. 
and then to see him die in that way um, might be a little much for kids. Um, so just kind of keep that one keep that one in mind too. There was a creature named Boar Gullet who is a kind of a tentacled creature, and when Saw Gerrera and his uh, kind of terrorist rebels are trying to interrogate Bodhi Rook, the uh, defecting Imperial pilot, uh, they have this creature that kind of wraps his tentacles around him and latches onto his his forehead uh, to kind of read his thoughts and see if he's telling the truth. That part was a little creepy, so I think you know my daughter in particular, she would not have liked that part and she wouldn't want to watch it, um, so just putting that out there. And then, without giving away too much, at the very, very end of the movie, Darth Vader does go and viciously take out multiple rebel soldiers in a very awesome but also very brutal scene. Um, So that's just something to keep in mind, too. So those are just some things that I think you may want to consider if you're looking at uh, taking, you know, it's the the holiday coming up soon. Kids are going to be off school. You're going to be looking for something to do. If you want to take young kids to go see Rogue One, just kind of keep some of those things in mind that maybe, depending on what your thoughts are, might not be the best uh, for some of the young kids. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the music that I've been dropping in on occasion as a little transition sound. Um, the end of, uh, I think it's track two on the soundtrack, a long ride ahead. And um, it has, I wouldn't even really call it a theme. And again, I'm not a musical person, so my terminology is, is may not be totally correct. But I would call it the Rogue One motif that does play kind of during the last maybe 30 seconds or so of uh, track two on the soundtrack and it's when the title card comes up and you see the words rogue one on the screen um i really like that little piece of music and i that kind of comes back up uh, several times um throughout the rest of the the soundtrack the rest of the movie um i thought it was a fun blending of the original star wars theme and kind of a new take on it and uh i i really liked it so um that's kind of been Played in my head, and and I criticized the Force Awakens for not having themes and music that stuck in my head when I listened to it. Rogue One, um, and I even I even sent some feedback into a, a Star Wars podcast, and I, I felt a little bit about without mentioning what Star Wars podcast it was. Um, I felt like they didn't take my feedback seriously. Uh, I said that I felt that the music, to me at least, on the on the first couple of viewings was the weakest part of The Force Awakens because there weren't really themes and there weren't really pieces of music that I was humming to um, when I left the theater. Whereas when I left Rogue One, I was humming that whole little motif, that that whole little... Dun, dun, how's it go? Dun, 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 dun. Just like that. See, that's how musical I am. Um, I apologize to all um, children and those who have sensitive ears that had to listen to that. Um, But I came out of the movie theater humming that, and and that was stuck in my head, and I I feel like I didn't get that from The Force Awakens. And uh, I I still, not that I'm bitter or resentful, but when I brought that up to the other Star Wars podcast and they kind of just blew it off, they're like, well, you know what? Um, 
too bad. There were plenty of themes and there were plenty of, you know, it was, it was because you didn't get the soundtrack ahead of time. Um, you know, with all the other Star Wars movies, you had the soundtrack ahead of time and the, you know, you were able to listen to it and it built up, uh, you know, it built up in your mind and you were familiar with it by the time you went to go see the movie. Okay, well, sure, maybe for Force Awakens that was true. I didn't have the soundtrack of this one until after I saw the movie, so that doesn't hold true for this one. Um, and this one, I, I felt the music was much stronger than it was in The Force Awakens. Um, not to be little John Williams stuff at all, but um, just that that was different. So um, real quick, going through some of the music here, I liked... Um, I liked all the little hints at the Empire theme. And um, in track one, He's Here For Us, there was a little bit of a, sounded like a Force Awakens kind of march type motif or theme going on there. Um, but uh, like that one and like some of the little callbacks that were in there. And I did like the new, the kind of the new Imperial theme uh, that was in Rogue One um, for this movie. Not the Imperial March, which did show up a few times, but that little dun 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 that kind of little piece that kept showing up uh, every now and then, especially when Krennic would show up. Um, I like that, and I like some of the other little callbacks to some of the older Imperial music from uh, Episode Four before you got the Imperial March, and that became the iconic piece of music for the Empire. So I already talked for a second about uh, A Long Ride Head, and that has that little uh, Rogue One motif that plays during the last, the last 30 seconds or so in there. Um, I did like the number four on the soundtrack, Trust Goes Both Ways. There are some little hints of the Force theme, the Ben Kenobi theme from the original Star Wars movie in that one. That one also, I felt like at the beginning of it, especially, I'll play it here in a second, had a bit of a uh, Across the Stars, Episode 2 kind of vibe to it. Um, but I'll, I'll put that in here uh, so that you can hear that part. I, I kind of I got reminded of that as I was listening to it. Number five on the soundtrack, When Has Become Now, uh, has a great little twist on the imperial music uh, and the uh, kind of empire theme, the Vader motif from Star Wars. Uh, that little, sometimes you'd get this scene of the Death Star and it would do the little dun, 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 dun kind of thing. Um, and uh, I got little hints of that from this one, from number five on the soundtrack.
I mean, going back to some of my criticisms of the music from The Force Awakens, and again, I love that movie. I love the music of that movie. But to me, that was its weakest point. Uh, weakest point was, yes, there was a Kylo Ren theme and there was some other stuff going on there, but this, I felt, had some of those classic movie villain type musical themes and musical cues um, so similar to the original Star Wars that, that just were seemed to be missing a little bit for me from The Force Awakens. And again, I'm, I'm not... I'm not a musical person. Um, I don't play any instruments. I, I don't, you know, I sing in the car um, and not well, but, um, you know, so I'm sure there's things that I'm missing, uh, not necessarily having an ear that's attuned to those kind of things, but um, just felt that, that this was a, a much stronger movie musically um, than The Force Awakens was. And impressed that that came from someone who's not John Williams. I mean, and knowing that he put this together in four weeks, four and a half weeks, is just amazing. Um, I really liked, and this gets into some of my other stuff about getting to see Darth Vader's castle for the first time. Um, you have uh, number 10 on the soundtrack. I know I'm kind of jumping around. I'm not doing all of them. Um, if you want to listen to the soundtrack, go get it. It's a great, great soundtrack. Uh, number 10 is Krennic's Aspirations. This is when he visits Darth Vader's Bast Castle, um, which, uh, did I just see today somewhere in the visual dictionary, um, that this is, it's definitely Mustafar, um, and that there was a Sith castle there or a Sith base or cave or something there um, to begin with, and that's probably why they were using this planet um, as a base of operations uh, for the uh, Trade Federation, the Confederacy, um, you know, Count, uh, Count Dooku and, and Darth Sidious were using this. But apparently, uh, the Emperor built this castle as a modern structure over the Sith caves that were there. Um, as a way of forcing Darth Vader to have to relive his biggest failure um, and to be there. Like, this this is where Vader was kept until he was needed. Um, you know, and so that that just kind of also shows the, the evilness of the Emperor, um, that that would be, you know, his new, Vader's new home uh, is going to be the spot where uh, Anakin Skywalker was officially killed off uh, and burned away. So that I thought was also kind of cool too. But uh, this Krennic's Aspirations has some great, it's got a great kind of bombastic introduction to Bast Castle. Then um, it's got some eerie little music in there, a little Imperial theme uh, from Star Wars, from the original Star Wars, not the Imperial March, but that little Imperial theme coming through. And then a little Imperial March from Empire in there too. Um, a great, great piece of music.
So I, I just, I, I don't think I can say it enough that the music of this movie really makes me feel like I'm back in that era, the era of the original Star Wars movies. I, I feel like I'm right there. Uh, Michael Giacchino's done a great job of, of, in some bits and pieces, emulating John Williams, adding to John Williams. Um, if anything happens to John Williams, then they just they need to use Michael Giacchino because I thought he just did a phenomenal job in this movie. That was the one place where I was maybe a little nervous to see, okay, what is what is it going to sound like? We haven't heard a Star Wars movie, unless you want to count some of the Clone Wars stuff. Um, we haven't heard Star Wars without John Williams. And it, it did a great job. So they keep, keep him on, keep him on retainer, use him for everything. Um, I'm going to jump to number 14, Scrambling the Rebel Fleet. There's a lot of musical callbacks to the original trilogy in this one. Um, just, I mean, it's, it, it's the same as with the music at the uh, Battle of Yavin and Battle of Endor. When you get into these battles and you get these strong, you know, musical anthems that are just playing, that are just, you're right back in the action again, just like you know, being a kid and watching some of these Star Wars movies for the first time. This is one of those songs that the the scrambling the rebel fleet is one of those songs where I have to be really careful if I'm listening to this in the car that I'm not speeding um, because it can cause problems. You just you feel like you're right there in the battle and, and all of a sudden your Nissan Sentra becomes an X-wing or the Millennium Falcon or, or whatever. Um, which yeah, it's I, I like my car, but it's not an X-wing. Um, so a couple I may not necessarily play them here, but just a couple of comments I had. Number sixteen, the master switch. All the deaths in this one, um, you know, you, you have that great scene of uh, Chirrut, who's doing his mantra. You know, I I am. I always get this backwards. Whether it's I am with the I am, the force is with me. I am one with the force. The force is with me. I am one with the force. The force is with me. And he does. He keeps doing that, and and obviously goes to his death. And we see all the other people meet their uh, final demise. Number 17, your father would be proud, um, is as far as I can tell, it's, it seems like it's mostly an entirely original piece of music, not a whole lot of other callbacks. Um, I don't think I'd have to listen to it again, but you know, it sounds like mostly, uh, original. Um, and then we have the hope music now, interesting for a song entitled hope to start the way that it does with Darth Vader brutally destroying the rebel soldiers on the blockade, well, as they're trying to get into the blockade runner to escape with the Death Star plans. Um, so he's. this is the song where Vader is killing everyone in sight uh, that he possibly can. Leia, gets to the, Leia ends up getting the plans and talks about how they've been given hope. Um, and then you have a bit of the rebel march from Star Wars, a bit of the Force theme when Leia shows up. Um, just, I, I really like this piece of music too.
I love that kind of ending part there where it gets to the end of the battle and and the uh, blockade runner has gotten away and you just have Vader kind of standing there and it's it's almost one of those I'll get you I'll get you next time kind of things from the the villain um just a great scene in the movie that entire last hour is just amazing but um you know just a great scene to see him standing there and it's it's almost like at the end of Empire Strikes Back when they blast away on the Falcon and you just see him standing there just like and every person on the crew of that Star Destroyer knows someone's about to get choked um and he kind of looks back at the at the viewport the window real quick as if like I cannot believe this just happened and you kind of feel like that's it's a frustration um that leads into episode four um you know when he's frustrated and, and choking people out and um, you know, there will be no one to stop us this time. That whole thing that's coming up in, in the next movie. Um, you kind of get that feeling from him as he's watching the, the blockade runner get away uh, at the end of the Hope Song. Um, then you've got uh, three pieces at the very end, the Jin Erso and Hope Suite. Uh, a lot of callbacks there. The Imperial Suite has got a lot of uh, kind of really cool callbacks to the Imperial themes, whether it's the March or the old the Episode Four Star Wars Imperial kind of motifs and, and little pieces there. Um, 21 Guardian of the Wills Suite uh, seems like there, I don't remember if there were too many callbacks in that one, but... Um, I really do think that a lot of the Guardian of the Wills stuff is going to be coming up in Episode 8. I feel like that's just, that's there for us to look forward to with it. Okay, I have two more things, two more things that I wanted to cover, and then that will be it. I'm going to wrap up my thoughts um, on Episode, episode Rogue One, uh, Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. And I'm going to finish that up. I just said that I think we've got some stuff coming up in Episode 8. Um, related to what we saw in Rogue One. I want to talk about that at the very, very end. But very quickly, I want to go through a list of some of the Easter eggs, and these were just really, really fun uh, to catch. Um, some of them more fun than others. but So we had Blue Milk that shows up. Uh, we have a Juggernaut uh, vehicle from Revenge of the Sith, uh, used in the Clone Wars, now used as kind of a prisoner transport when uh, Jin is on the planet Wobani. Uh, Wobani is another one, an Imperial labor camp planet, is an anagram for Obi-Wan, or at least it seems like it would be. Uh, Dr. Evazan and Panda Baba are in the Jeddah marketplace. Um, that one, and that was one of the ones I cringed at a little bit. I'm like, really? Like in a few days they're supposed to be on Tatooine. And that, not to say that they can't travel to Tatooine in a few days, but okay. I, I don't feel like I needed them there, but... You know, it, it was it was funny. I, I did chuckle. I smiled a little bit, um, but I also did cringe a little bit. Like, okay, that's kind of that's a little on the nose. Um, I would give my right arm for that little Easter egg not to have been in there. Thank you. I'm I'm here all week, uh, or however long you keep playing this podcast. Also in the Jeddah Marketplace, um, there was an Imperial probe droid, an RA seven droid, an ATST Walker. Uh, kyber crystals show up a lot. Um, you know, we've learned that they power the lightsabers. Uh, if anybody's read uh, Splinter of the Mind's Eye, that was, I think, when they were first mentioned, or, or at least they were first mentioned in something other than early drafts of the original Star Wars movie. Uh, but kyber crystals are, are supposed to be a power source of lightsabers, can enhance, I don't know if they enhance force abilities, um, but at least they have a connection, a strong connection to the Force. And so then the irony that this is being used to power the Death Star. Um, and I think even Chirrut may say at one point in the movie, the, was it the, the brightest stars? 
have hearts of Kyber or something like that. Um, and so then interesting that the Death Star is has a heart of Kyber in it. Um, but then the irony that the what powered the Jedi's weapons is being used as a force for evil. Uh, so again, just shows how evil the, the Emperor is. Um, the Guardians of the Wills shows up. That was something that was original to the first drafts of the original Star Wars movie. And I want to talk a little bit more about that in a minute because I think that's going to bring us into Episode Eight. The game Dejaric, um, which you see Chewbacca and R2-D2 playing in the original Star Wars movie, and then you see it again in The Force Awakens. They were actually playing with a non-holographic version. It's like they had little clay pieces or, or, or uh, game pieces that they were using. Uh, I think it was when they were on Jeddah. You have Vader's Bast Castle on Mustafar, which uh, just really cool that, you know, I, I imagine that as a kid when I remember seeing kind of the Ralph McQuarrie drawings and, and hearing about that for the first time as a kid, I just try to imagine what Vader's castle would look like um, and just to finally get to see it in a movie uh, and know that it's actually there as part of the, the Star Wars history is kind of cool. Uh, Vader's Acolytes, which I will talk more about in a minute because I think that does play into um, some stuff that's coming in um, Episode 8 and beyond. We had Yavin Base. That was pretty cool to be able to see. Uh, Mon Mothma was there. General Dadana, Bail Organa, R2, and 3PO. That was maybe the only other time that I cringed at a uh, a bit of a um, an Easter egg or a callback was when they show up and, and C-3PO says something like, oh, and now we're going to Scarif. And I didn't. Do I need to see them? No. Do I know that they're around? Sure, I know that they're around. And I know at the end of the movie, if Princess Leia is there, what actually would have made more sense, I just now thought of this, what would make more sense to me, and I probably wouldn't have cringed quite so much, is if in that final scene when Princess Leia is being given the plans and she makes a comment about how they've been given hope, is if when those plans are being delivered to her that um, Captain Antilles is there delivering the plans or he's standing with her and the droids are with him um, and that you know they they come in with him or, or they're there standing with her for some reason, that would have made more sense to me as opposed to having a, a shot with exclusively them standing there making a comment about how they're off to Scarif or, or whatever. Um, that just it didn't quite make a whole lot of sense to me that, that that little scene was in there. It was almost a little bit too much at that point. Um, if you are a Star Wars Rebels fan, there were a couple of different appearances or audio uh, callbacks. There's an intercom call for a General Sendula um, and a call for Captain Antilles. Not Wedge Antilles, but I, at least as far as I know, I think they asked for Captain Antilles, which would have been the captain of the blockade runner from the original Star Wars. Uh, the droid Chopper from Rebels makes an appearance, a very quick one, or at least he's a droid that's supposed to look like Chopper. Um, in the Battle of Scarif, you had Red Leader and Gold Leader, and apparently they were using old uh, footage uh, of that. It was not done digitally, so people who hated Tarkin, don't worry. Uh, the Tantive Four escapes the battle, and Leia's handed the Death Star plans. I thought that part was really cool, that the Tantive Four is basically an escape pod for the Rebel flagship. Um, I thought it was a little interesting that Princess Leia would have just gone right into the battle with the rest of them, but, you know, it is what it is. Uh, one other thing I thought was kind of interesting, a little bit of a callback to how this is a more of a war movie uh, and a callback to, um, was it episode two? Yeah, episode two, Attack of the Clones. Um, you know, you have the character that is trying to sell Obi-Wan some death sticks. Do you want to buy some death sticks? 
You don't want to sell me death sticks. I don't want to sell you death sticks. Why don't you go home and rethink your life? Why don't I go home and rethink my life? Um, that whole thing. So you get the idea that it's some kind of a drug in the Star Wars universe. And apparently, and I'm trying to remember, I did see this a couple times, but I don't remember exactly what scene. I, it probably was somewhere around Yavin Base or the Battle of Scarif that you had some death sticks that were kind of stuck in the in the helmets um, or strapped to the helmets of the rebel soldiers, kind of like how you'd see with uh, soldiers in Vietnam, how they have like a, a pack of cigarettes or um, probably some joints stuck to their, their helmets, uh, and you see in some of the photos or some of the videos. Jumping all the way back to the very beginning of the movie, something I forgot is um, when they show the planet's rings at the beginning of the movie, it looks like a triangle of the Star Destroyer coming up on screen, just like it did in Episode Four. I thought that was kind of a fun twist, that you have a very similar image, but it's not a Star Destroyer. It's just how the light is shining on these planetary rings, and it looks like a triangle uh, coming up on the screen just like it did in the original Star Wars movie. So that's it for the Easter eggs. Um, some of the other things that I did want to mention really fast is um, the differences uh, in the, probably from the reshoots, um, that there was some stuff that came up in the trailers that did not show up in the movie. Uh, Jen and company running on the beach holding the Death Star plans in her hand. That obviously didn't happen. Uh, you have some f scenes of Krennic walking, walking on the beach that didn't happen. Um, apparently there was more dialogue with Krennic and Vader that didn't happen. That was probably replaced with Krennic and Tarkin, if I had to guess. You had a scene of Jin up on the tower, the transmission tower, and a TIE fighter pops up in, in the trailers. And that was a pretty stirring image to see. Um, that never happened in the movie. Um, apparently there was some more dialogue with Jin and Mon Mothma. Uh, there was Saw Guerrera's whole speech of, if you keep fighting, what will you become? And that whole thing. Um, so you, you can tell that there were definitely some differences and, and I, I would be interested to see what I did read, I think earlier today was that, um, Gareth Edwards was shocked that he was allowed to kill everybody. Um, that that was originally how the script was. And then I guess they made changes cause he thought, well, it's Disney. They don't want me to kill everybody. And then when they saw it, according to Gareth Edwards, when they saw it, they, Disney said, well, wait a minute. I, I kind of feel like everybody has to die. And he was like, oh, well, so I can do that. And they're like, yeah, like it, it's the thing that makes sense. Do it. So I, it sounds like that maybe. I mean, I'm sure we'll get the real story um, you know, as time goes by. But it sounds like that might have had something to do with the reshoots as well, that maybe having everybody live was a little too optimistic or a little too unrealistic for the tone of the rest of the movie. Um, but just thought that was kind of an interesting, interesting way to hear that story. I will say really, really quickly before I get into what I think is coming uh, from this movie and influencing uh, episodes seven, eight, nine, whatever we get from from here on out. Um, the first time I did hear that little theme um, at the end of a long ride ahead, the the kind of Rogue One motif, um, it kind of made me think of Spaceballs, and I. You know, I, I, at first, so I kind of, I thought that was a little, it put me off a little bit, but then as I heard it throughout the rest of the movie built into other themes and other songs, 
um, I got more used to it. And then when they did the planetary shield at the end of the movie, I'm like, it, it's this is Spaceballs. This is absolutely Spaceballs. Um, so thankfully it did not turn out that way. But um, though we could have had a whole Statue of Liberty type thing crashing on the beach at the end because we did, it was a movie on a beach. So at the end of the movie, totally could have happened. Um, but anyway, no, not Spaceballs. Um, so where are we going from here? I think what's really interesting goes back to some of the things that I mentioned earlier as being what I missed from the prequels. I think they're going to go head first in a big way and bring back the spirituality of the force um, you know, for these Star Wars movies coming up. I mean, you've got with The Force Awakens, you had the Knights of Ren. You've got Luke going back to the old, old Jedi Temple, which is like a, a, a pre, almost like pre-medieval monastery um, on an island somewhere. And so I kind of feel like that's going to come back in a big way. Even, uh, Lore Santeca, I think was his name. It was, uh, Max von Sydow's character in the force awakens was a member of the church of the force. And so knowing all that stuff and knowing that those little tidbits, those little hints, uh, those little seeds have been planted. Then I kind of felt like you got a lot of stuff in rogue one that is going to try to bring that uh, back and and I feel like it's almost too obvious in Rogue One that this is going to play a role uh, somewhere down the line. So you've got Darth Vader. I had to read up on this a little bit because I'm not up on the most recent books. Um, you know, I've had other things to do, so I haven't read all the books. But um, apparently, the robed figure that comes in to announce to Darth Vader that Krennic is there uh, when they're at Bast Castle is uh, a member of the Acolytes of the Beyond. And I do remember hearing a little bit about them because I did read the uh, Chuck Wendig after Aftermath book uh, with my son before we saw The Force Awakens. And it does mention at the end of the book there are th this group that's going around and trying to collect up or purchase uh, items that belonged to Darth Vader um, and somehow return them to him in death like by destroying them or whatever and somehow getting those back to him. So I, I don't know. Um, but apparently it's this group that possibly worked with Darth Vader uh, as he was alive um, and then in his death have then gone and collected. So most likely, uh, maybe that's where Kylo Ren got the charred helmet of Darth Vader. Um, so I, that could be interesting to try to find out what what is the backstory of that. We've got the backstory of uh, Luke's lightsaber um, that went with his hand when it got chopped off in Empire Strikes Back, and uh, you had Maz Kanata saying, "That's a story for how did you get this? That's a story for another time." That I, I kind of feel like there are some background forces here that we have. Uh, see, pun kind of intended there. Background forces um, that have been working to keep to maintain certain things to preserve certain things so you've got the acolytes of the beyond that would work with darth vader and and kept going even after his death we have the guardians of the wills which i feel like that has to play a larger role um when you've you've introduced this ancient jedi temple on octo that's how you say it um and then on jedda and this keeps coming back up about these ancient jedi temples and and artifacts and and the wills being, you know, in the original Star Wars scripts, the wills were a group that kept a journal of all the events of the galaxy. Um, and that that's how these stories were being told. I feel like that's going to come back somewhere. 
then you do have the characters of the Church of the Force and how they are preserving some of this information. Maybe they've worked, maybe they worked with Luke Skywalker. Um, I think there were some some stories in one of the other books about how they worked with Luke to try to um, track down some Jedi artifacts and these old Jedi temples and, and kind of helped him find the history of the Jedi so that he could bring it back um, after the Empire had been defeated. So I really feel like that where we go from here, that this movie has influenced what's going to come. And we're going to see more of the Guardians of the Wills, maybe even the Wills themselves. Um, you know, maybe that informs, maybe it, it causes us to see a bigger picture of the Force. Um because they they played with that a little bit in The Force Awakens. And so I'll just be curious to see what comes of that. But I kind of feel like those little background groups, kind of the spiritual side, uh, the servants of you know, maybe the non-Jedi or non-Sith servants of the dark side and, and servants of the Force um, will play an increasing role as we go forward into the other movies that are coming up. So I will be curious to see. I, I believe that that's probably where this is going, if I were to have to guess and, and speculate at this point. Um, but if this is the future of the Star Wars movies, then bring it on. Um, you know, I, I get worried sometimes about Star Wars fatigue, um, that we've been so used to, you know, growing up, so used to big gaps in time where there was no Star Wars, and then the thought that there would be no Star Wars once you reach the end, once you had Episode Three. And now all of a sudden we're going to have Star Wars probably every year from now until the end of time. Um, and so at least so far with the Marvel movies, every new comic book movie, superhero movie that comes out, I'm excited about it. You know, I especially, and I wish I was more excited about the DC stuff. I am excited about Justice League. But every time a new Marvel thing comes out, because I know that they've been doing it right, you know, even if their movies are not hits, they're at least enjoyable. Um, I haven't had one that I just hated uh, up to this point. So, and I, I would have been worried that I would have gotten superhero fatigue, even though I'm a huge superhero fan, but it just hasn't happened. So I don't know that I see Star Wars fatigue. It's a big enough universe that there's plenty of stories out there. Um, and just, I'm, I'm looking forward to more. So, so if you have not, first of all, if you haven't seen Rogue One yet, I basically spoiled the whole thing for you. Um, but I warned you at the beginning, there were spoilers here. Um, if you have seen Rogue One and you disagree with me or you agree with me, would love to hear some feedback from you. Um, you can email it 30podcast at gmail.com. You can call 87235movie. That's 872356-6843. Uh, you can tweet uh, at 30podcast. That's at 30podcast. We're on Facebook, 30podcast. Um on Instagram and all that other stuff. You can find us in all the major podcatchers. We're Stitcher, Satchel, Google Play, iTunes. You can listen to us directly from our, our website, 30podcast.com. Uh, but yeah, we'd love to hear some feedback from you. If you have some thoughts on Rogue One that, if, again, if you disagree with me, if you agree, um, we're going to try to get the guys together. We'll get the band together, and I will bring together my group of rebels, um, and uh, we will... We will take on the mission of, of doing our own little commentary of Rogue One and and uh, we'll find out how some of the other guys felt because I know that there are some opinions that are the opposite of mine and, and you know felt strongly about it or you know that it was just okay. 
and uh, I know in particular Pat has not seen it yet, so um, Pat obviously is not listening to this, otherwise I just ruined everything for him. Um, but uh, yeah, so if you agree, disagree, whatever, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, please, please, please. We've, we've had a bunch of new followers, and again, we're, we're little. We're little but mighty. Um, we've had a bunch of new followers. We just passed 100 followers on Twitter um, not that long ago, and we're already at 155. So it is just it leapt ahead. We're not in the thousands, and there's other podcasts that are in the thousands of followers. We're not there, but we appreciate every single one of you. Thank you so much uh, for coming back and listening every single week. And um, we just we would love to interact with you more. So if you give us some feedback, if you want to get in touch with us, either do that on iTunes, do it through one of the other ways that I shared. Um, we just we want to hear from you because we want to we want to make this the best show that we possibly can, so that you have the best experience. You've got there's a lot of choices out there with podcasts, and we just thank you so much for choosing ours as one of the ones that you spend your time listening to. I know that my phone gets filled up with a whole bunch of stuff I can never listen to. So just thank you so much for those of you that come back and listen every single time. And we want to make this the best we can for you. So we would love to have you involved uh, and, and bring you in on the conversation as well. In the meantime, uh, we will be back to our 80s movies. In fact, I think maybe today um, I will be bringing out uh, another episode alongside this one. Um, it's probably going to be one of our other 80s movies that comes out uh, at the same time as this little holiday gift for you. Uh, and then we will end the year with talking about Top Gun. And that's going to come up next week. And then we are straight on into 2017 or 1987. And uh, we've got some exciting stuff coming for that. So check on our website, check 30podcast.com. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, all those other spots. And until then, I am one with the Force and the Force is with me. And may the Force be with you.